Hello, and welcome to Broadening the Narrative. This is a podcast where I talk to people who are broadening the narratives I was taught within white evangelicalism. I'm your host, Nikki Pappas. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm so glad you're here. My first memoir, As Familiar as Family, is now available to purchase on my website at NikkiPappas.com. I'll share more about this at the end so we can get to today's episode. On today's episode of Broadening the Narrative, I am joined by Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza. Dr. Robin has an extensive bio that I will be linking in the show notes, and they have been described as a scholar activist, scholar leader, thought leader, teacher, public theologian, ethicist, poet of moral reason, and word artist. Among these ways of describing Dr. Robin, they are also a visionary thinker who has spent two decades working in the borderlands of church, academy, and movements, seeking to not only disrupt, but dismantle supremacy culture and help steward the logic of liberation. Dr. Robin is a non-binary, transqueer, Latinx, and adult on the autism spectrum. They are the author of Activist Theology and Body Becoming, A Path to Our Liberation, which we will be talking about in our conversation today. So thank you for coming on to the podcast, Dr. Robin. How are you today? Thank you so much. I'm good. And, you know, normally I'd be talking to you from Cherokee, Uchi, and Shawnee land, which is called Nashville, Tennessee, but I'm on Ohlone land right now in the San Francisco Bay area. And it was 103 degrees yesterday. So I have not escaped the heat wave, but I am very well with my cold brew and oat milk. How are you? Um, I... I'm just like the 103. I'm like fanning myself now. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. yeah, my friend, um, my friend said, I see you brought the summer solstice heat wave with you. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I've been good. It's been a busy morning, busier than I thought it was going to be. So before we got on the call, I was just taking some time to put my hand on my chest, just take some breaths, just kind of yeah. relax my body. Cause I even, I was supposed to go get groceries today and I forgot to even go do that because of all the other things that came up, but yeah. I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, to start us off, can you share anything else you think would be helpful for our conversation today about your book to share about yourself, uh, in addition to what I shared in your bio? Well, you know, I, I like to call myself a storyteller and I like to use stories to help connect the dots. Um, and, you know, I'm trained as a philosopher, theologian, and ethicist. And I spend a lot of time kind of in this register of high theory, but really when it comes down to the sort of the crux of everything, it all comes back to story and the stories we would tell each other and listen to at the kitchen table or in the living room or on the front porch. And so even though I'm trained as an academic, my heart is really with people. And oftentimes we use the intellectual class or academic knowledge as a way to distance ourselves from people. And what I want to try to do is tell stories in a way that helps suture those wounds and that distance so that we can really build an ethical future and another possible world. Mm, I love it all so much already, just my heart and just 
you know, the podcast for my podcast, broadening the narrative, right? Like the narratives, the stories, the origin stories we tell, whether those are rooted in reality or not, right? Like all those things matter. And, right. you know, you wrote this in your book and I heard you talk about it in a podcast too, because I listened to a couple where you were a guest and just the idea of like relationships, yeah. you know, and so just when we make those connections to people and what that does for us. So, you know, I read your book, Body Becoming, which I have a copy of here and wow, just such an incredible book. And I left a review on Goodreads and wanted to share it to encourage other people to go give five-star ratings to books you love and write reviews. So I wanted to share it. Um, I said, Body Becoming by Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza is essential reading, weaving personal narrative and vision casting for participatory democracy, emancipatory politics, and democratic justice. Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza leads readers on a journey into connection and healing. I highly recommend Body Becoming for anyone who is seeking to live an embodied life as part of a collective body. And that's just something I loved so much, again, rooting it into this collective body. So why did you write Body Becoming and who did you have in mind as you were writing this book? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I, when I pitched the book to Broadleaf, I initially was pitching a book on becoming embodied. Hmm. And I was going to write my story about just coming into an awareness of my body, the felt sense of my body. And so we contracted the book in April of 2020, like right in the beginning Mm -hmm. of the pandemic. And then in May of 2020 is when a lot of the uprising started. And as I was sitting there thinking about embodiment and my journey to get into my body and then watching everything that was unfolding I thought to myself what what if embodiment is a vision for democracy Hmm. and so it was really the uprisings that helped me imagine how to write the book after it was already contracted right yeah and which is kind of like an oh shit moment you know like (laughs) um but I really just let the people guide me, like Mm -hmm. what was happening in the world, you know, and thinking about how the logic of whiteness forces fragmentation, forces disassociation, Mm -hmm. forces a deep disconnection from relationship, right? For example, I don't use the self-checkout at grocery stores because I believe so deeply in relationships. I always go through a checkout line with a human. And I always talk to that human. Now I'm deeply introverted and autistic. And that's probably my autism showing up that I talk to everybody. But for me, it's about relationship and about relationality and recognizing that their labor is not invisible. And mostly it's people of color and women of color who are working at grocery stores where I shop. And for me, it's about humanizing people and doing that through relationship. And so you know, I, I just believe so deeply in relationship and am, I just, I like have this like allergy to the logic of whiteness that, um, yeah, I just tried to write the book from a place of like, how do we be a better cultural body or a better collective body? And I think that's why I invite people to tell me 
how does the book land for you? Because I am actually very interested because if we can start a conversation about our bodies and our interpersonal bodies and our collective body, how might that shape and shift our democratic body? And, and could it? I mean, I really think it can. So that's why I wrote the book. The, the people spoke to me, you know, sort of, you know, and, it, and it's sort of, I'm a theologian, so I'm sort of, I, I lean heavily on sort of wisdom of the spirit. And I think that's where the spirit was, you know, that we always see cracks of life, right? Um, weeds growing up in between the cracks, the, the cracks of a house, the cracks of concrete, and in those cracks is life. And so I try to write from the fragmented place, right? From the liminal space, from the unseen spaces, but it's the spaces where little fractions of light are shining through. Yes, that is so interesting to be contracted for one book and then to be like, okay, well, I want to add in this whole other thing because it's so connected mm-hmm. to seeing how interconnected the, the two are, like your own personal journey to discovering embodiment and how that shapes the democratic body. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I'm curious, this is a planned question, but did you already have a lot in your mind that you, that you knew you wanted to write before it went a new direction or was kind of all of it new things you were writing down? Cause I know like some people say, which I know it wasn't your first book, but you know, some people be like, I, I already knew like what I wanted to say. And I put it all in this thing <laughs> and then to have to bring in this whole other Avenue and uh, layer to the conversation Well, I had in my mind, I am going to write about my process of embodiment. So, Mm -hmm. so like that's in my mind and then everything in May, you know, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and Armour Arbery, you know, all that is happening. And it, it was really an oh shit moment. I'm like, no, I need to write about this and then figuring out how do I do that with story and how do I do that without appropriating stories and so I decided just to write about my my own survival and and really how do I make sense of that and and how do I participate in a democracy that has held me on the underside of history for my entire life because that's what I was seeing in 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 the stories that were bubbling up right and so I very much identify you know, having been born to a Mexican woman not of this country and raised by her for 12 years, I very much identify with, you know, other Black and African-American folks, other Latinx folks, other Brown folks who who don't have power, access, and privilege. Um, I grew up in deep poverty, like intermittent electricity, which I write about, um, food scarcity. And so, you know, I, I very much have this like bodily memory Mm. of pain and suffering of being on the underside. And, you know, how do you communicate that in a way that helps transform society? Because I don't want to just, I didn't want it to be a story of look at me, I'm the first in my family to graduate high school, college, graduate school, and earn a PhD. That feels egotistical. I'm really interested in 
how do we nurture community in a way that lets difference just be difference instead of requiring people to assimilate acquiesce into like a homogenous community mm-hmm. i i really believe in what i call a kind of robust cosmopolitan democracy i think difference is what will heal us mm-hmm. I, I don't think things like white crystal fascism christian nationalism i don't think that is the way forward and and one of the questions that has has come from this book for me is and and i've and i've had some targeted harassment in, in the past couple months from white crystal fascists and crystal christian nationalists and so the question that bubbles up for me as i'm thinking about how do we really build a democratic body for everyone the question is is every life grievable are the white crystal fascists and proud boys and christian nationalists who have targeted harassment against me are their lives grievable is my life grievable is your life grievable and can we honestly answer that question and then once we answer that question can we begin to build community because my guess is there's a lot of people concerned for our democracy there's a lot of people concerned for our churches and just to use the right left spectrum though i i don't sort of i don't operate in that binary of right and left and which we can talk about a little bit later but you know folks on the right are deeply concerned about folks on the left and folks on the left are deeply concerned about folks on the right. So we've domesticated polarization to a point where we can't be in conversation with one, or, with one another. And furthermore, both sides are unwilling to say that the other side's life is grievable. So we are really in a conundrum of even what it means to be human. And so I've been thinking a lot about belonging and freedom. What does it mean to belong to a people? What does it mean to belong to yourself? What really is freedom? Because, you know, both sides are calling for freedom, mm-hmm. but, they, but both sides have a very different understanding of what freedom is. So, you know, this book sort of bubbled up as a sort of a response to what was happening and has really put me on another path mm-hmm for my next project around belonging and freedom. And and hopefully we can begin to have some hard conversations to really try to build an ethical future. Yeah, that question about whose life is grievable is just one that has been just the idea of nestling into this humanity enhancing nuance, right? Like in where I, I know where whiteness and white evangelicalism for me had me kind of all in on this camp. And then when I came out of that, it like my zealousness didn't go away. So then it's like, well, then I'm all in over here and now you're the enemy. And so it's like, how do I exist without harming other people? Like, I I don't want to do harm. I guess still want accountability and all those things, but not everyone has to on this issue end up where I've ended up. Or as long as we have, yeah, like this idea of common ground and things that 
really challenge me and, and bring to the forefront, the complexity of humanity (laughs) where, uh, I think the narratives, right. Like within white evangelicalism that make these people good, these people are bad. And then if I haven't done the work, like Joe Lumen and others talking about like decolonizing your faith, then I just replicate that same harm over here. And so such a journey, but yeah. And like, you've talked about even in already like whiteness and what that does to us and um, poverty and scarcity tied to capitalism and systems that exploit us. And so I know that in your book, you, you talked about suppressing pain and living this fragmented disembodied life. So yeah. What would you say contributed to that suppression of pain and and fragmented disembodied life for you? Mm, That's a good question. So I lived with a single parent for the first 12 years of my life and she didn't know how to handle her anger and was subsequently emotionally abusive and physically abusive. And I ended up minimizing a lot of that. I had no early intervention to diagnose my autism. So my brain is working differently Now I'm traumatized by abuse and neglect and abandonment. And the way that my brain operated and probably still does operate on some level is to respond to the trauma by minimizing. And because I was gifted, I coped with the pain and the oppression by becoming an academic. But I always knew that community was out there and I've always been able to find people to connect with and so even though I coped with a lot of my oppression by becoming an academic and like suppress the pain being in community with lots of different folks is where I learned to kind of process the pain and not let it live as a sort of concept, an abstract concept, right? To to really locate it in my body. And, you know, my body still remembers. I, I um, thank God I have a therapist. I've been seeing the same therapist since 2015. And, you know, I just told her, I feel like I'm at ground zero starting again. Like I'm Sisyphus, mm-hmm. you know, rolling the ball up the hill mm-hmm. and then it rolls back down. And, you know, I am still in a process of understanding myself, of understanding all I've been through in my, in my life. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, life is short. I don't know how many years I have left and I am just trying to be faithful in the small things. And, and for me, that is going to therapy every week and just trying to tell my story as best as I can so that we can help each other. I I really believe that we are, you know, we are social animals. We are, we are made to be in a pack or in a community. And we've really lost that in this age of neoliberalism and accelerated whiteness. And I'm just trying to return to some of those ancient, ancient practices of telling stories, Mm-hmm. eating food together, mm-hmm. building a larger table. 
Yes. Oh, that's so good. And what came to my mind was like internal family systems model therapy and this idea of like this academic part of you sort of then taking over in a way, like we, we had watched a video near the beginning of the pandemic with our kids and it talked about you're the pond and your fish are these different parts of you. So very like IFS like language and helping them understand like it's good that you have an angry fish, but sometimes your angry fish can take over your whole pond. And when that happens, here are some things to help care for your angry fish. And so hearing, yes, that your academic part trying to help you survive, you know, and trying to help you thrive. And for a time that coping mechanism in a way can, can be good. And so just along your journey, then seeing that, you know, some of the other things that were coming up for me were just the idea of within the Christian framework, since that's, you know, my context, the verse about, you'll know a tree by its fruit. And so as I'm hearing you talk, it's like this fruit of suppressing pain and living this fragmented life is like a lack of community, right. Is one of the things like, what else would you say are some, some fruit that is coming from that tree of disembodiment? So I, I actually think that's a really good metaphor because sometimes there is rotten fruit and then sometimes there is fruit that you can really enjoy, right? And so, you know, the rotten fruit was like isolation, mm-hmm. um, disconnection, an inability to respond and like always reacting. Mm-hmm. Whereas the fruit of sort of leaning into all the things, you know, has been like learning to have a relationship with my body, Mm -hmm. learning to be my own best friend, learning that the inner child is still there. And the adult Robin who has survived so much can care for the inner child in in really tangible ways and and I I think some of the other fruit that has come from this journey of my like somatic awareness has been every morning I wake up and I put my feet on the ground Mm -hmm. and I just sit there and I feel into the ground because as a person on the autism spectrum I can't feel my body unless someone is touching me or hugging Mm me but when I put my feet on the ground And I really spend time feeling into the ground. I can then imagine growing roots from my feet into the roots of the earth. And that has been a really good juicy piece of fruit that that has grown as a part of this journey. Because every morning I start with this embodiment practice. You know, instead of, yeah, I pick up my phone, I check the time and maybe check my messages. But before I get out of bed, I'm, you know, I have a practice and, you know, practice is what so many of us are missing because that practice that I do every morning helps me be in community. You know, it's, it's about, it's about nurturing the taproot. We all should have a taproot. And, you know, for me, that taproot is having grown up in Texas, the big open sky of Texas, just the heavens were open and the piney woods of East Texas and the, the red clay of East Texas and, you know, the cactuses, 
of West Texas and the hill country of San Antonio. That's my taproot. And and when we can nurture the taproot, now I don't, I no longer live in Texas, right? I live in Tennessee, but that memory of the taproot helps me do this practice, which then helps me be in community. And, and, and it is all about relationship, right? It's about my relationship to my body, my relationship to the ground, my relationship to the earth. And, and my partner reminds me every day, if you ever need to be held, just lay on the ground and let mama earth hold you. So, you know, we're all on a journey. I'm really on a journey. Thank God for therapy. Yeah. Yes. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. And just to couch it back in that like relationship aspect, uh, you know, one of the sentences that you wrote was our culture gets made by and through practices of disconnection. Yeah. And you talk about like disconnection from ourselves, from each other, from the earth, from other animals, like all these things um, from plants. Right. And so in addition to what you shared about what on a personal level contributed to your disembodiment and to talking about whiteness. And, uh, I was thinking maybe we could even just talk more about scarcity. Cause I think mm-hmm. that's been such an, a interesting part for me that in the past few years coming up, but yeah, like, yeah. How do these trauma narratives of scarcity contribute to us being disconnected, uh, as a collective body? Yeah. You know, let me just first say there is enough there, there is enough and, and we have been sold a lie that there is not enough. Mm-hmm. And we have to have a discerning spirit because we can either believe the lie that there is not enough and then try to acquiesce to the American dream, or we can be counter hegemonic and practice an orientation of enoughness or abundance and build in that way. So I just want to sort of point out, like we have a choice. And so many of us have inherited a choice from our families because so many of our families have believed the lie. And I think it's our generation that is beginning to see through the lie and beginning to do something different. Yes, there have been people before us who have seen through the lie and were often not believed because they were black and brown folks. And now here we are at the end of empire needing to make real decisions about how to survive. And and I think that one of the choices we have is to build the kind of relationships that will practice abundance and that will practice a telling of the truths that have harmed us. I think when we begin to tell the truest truth, we confront those scarcity myths. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a lot of a lot of the myth, it's not just economic. You know, a lot of a lot of the myth is you'll never find community. You'll never mm-hmm. find someone that will understand you. And while I know that that feels very true to people, the reality is, is that I left the Bay Area because I couldn't find my people. Mm-hmm. And I moved home to the South and I continued to find my people. Now I left Texas in my mid twenties 
and you know lived in Chicago for seven years, lived in Colorado for seven years for the PhD, and then lived in California for two years. And I've been away from the sort of traditionalist sort of cultural milieu since my mid twenties. And, and here I am coming home to the South and continue to find my people. To me, that says there's enough and it's not manufactured. Like I randomly meet people who are like down and I'm like, oh, and, and, and yet I never could find those people here in the Bay Area. So, I mean, I guess I just want to point out that the myth of scarcity very much is rooted in like economic disparities. And we need to think a little bit broader because the scarcity mentality impacts our ability to find community. If we can find our people, I think everything else will fall into place. And I don't mean that in some sort of kumbaya way. I mean, when we do the hard work of connecting and building community, I really do believe everything will fall into place. But now we still need to be wise as serpents and make little moves against destructiveness. But doing it in community makes it all the more bearable. Yeah, I love that to just rest in the reminder of enoughness and finding the people who are on that similar journey and want to see that same world where we, like you had have in your bio about not just disrupting, but dismantling, or I know in your book, like the language of composting, you know, and that people are there and just the encouragement of that, uh, especially in a culture of whiteness and quote independence and that trying to pretend like we're not interdependent on one another, (laughs) but to just see that moving towards the flourishing of all peoples and that true flourishing isn't going to come at the expense of other people, right? Like it's without exploitation of people, I guess is a better way of saying it. So yeah, just, just resting in that. And so I hear your, you know, I've read your story, so I know some of this and I would love if you could share some more about your own journey coming into close relationship with your body and becoming more settled in your body, because with all the background that you've shared and then being in a culture, like we've talked about, yeah. What was that like for you to come into close relationship with your body? Yeah, it's, uh, I was really disconnected from my body um, and, you know, still have to work at being connected with my body. But, you know, I think, you know, living here in California um, after I finished my PhD, you know, I had access to queer competent, trans competent healthcare. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have been on a journey for a long time around, do I start hormones or not? And I think, you know, that has to be factored in to my journey because dosing testosterone has helped me feel more in my body. I cannot explain it. I don't know the science behind it. All I know is I feel at home. I feel, I feel, it feels like I'm taking a vitamin every week, even though it's not a vitamin. I just feel at home and I feel I feel settled. 
and I know not everyone has that experience, but for me, that's what it's been for me, a, a sense of being at home. So I would say finding my doctor, certainly in Nashville and going to the gender mm-hmm. clinic there and dosing testosterone has been important. And then, and then I would say certainly my partner who was a somatic instructor who wrote the afterword to the book. I don't think that I would be this far on my journey had I not met them because, you know, the book is really a response to how deeply serious I've taken their work. Even though I, even though I walked into my therapist's office in 2015 and said, how do I have a relationship with my body? It, you know, it took me another four years to get to a point where I was open and ready and willing to, to receive more. And when I started going to Aaron's somatic class in Nashville, it just sort of opened up something for me. And so I will say like being in relationship with dancers and artists, writers, you know, people who use text or narrative to as a form of art has has really opened me up you know because I spend I've spent a lifetime reading philosophy and theory which you know is a form of art but it doesn't speak to me the way that some of these other people speak to me through their art form and so I will say that you know the people that I'm in community with have helped me feel settled most of them are artists and artists of color. Uh, dosing testosterone has been a big part of that journey of helping me feel settled. And then, you know, I journaled every day for years, just trying to narrate my story, getting to know myself mm. outside of reading theory and philosophy, and really almost like putting a mirror up to myself. Can I see myself? Do I have the capacity to see myself? If I do, am I able to answer this question? Who am I and how do I know? That is all. Again, just on my own journey, I can, writing being such a way that my therapist was like, keep writing, keep writing. You know, this is helping you heal your story. Um, So yes, like I can relate to that. And just listening to that and knowing like also in your book, how you talked about doing cycling and triathlons and disciplining your body, but that not, even though you're moving your body, that wasn't the somatic work that ended up what that unlocked for you again, additional layer. So I love all of that. And to just, to think about, you know, going back to you talking about like having a taproot and to compare the fruit of disembodiment versus uh, somatic practice that connects you with everything, but beginning with yourself and caring for young Robin and connecting to the earth and feeling at home, like that language of the testosterone, like feeling at home in your body, feeling at home as a feeling, Oh, like how we just long for that. And so, you know, also in your book, you wrote changing me changes the world. And so I think that roots back to, we have a choice, right. And building relationships that practice abundance and that getting to know yourself and what that led to. And so, yeah, uh, I want to read another uh, section where you wrote to chart a better world, 
we begin first to chart a better understanding of ourselves and have a felt sense of our bodies so that we can cultivate healthy attachments in the world that then mobilize other bodies, including our cultural body to become well. So can you talk about this role that healthy attachments play in becoming bodied and how relationships again, going back to that, how, when we do relationships well, and from an embodied place can create those conditions for healing for what we're talking about here. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know if, if folks are familiar with attachment theory, but I, I'm very fascinated by attachment theory and how attachment theory shows up in things like religion and culture and family systems I write about in the book how in 2020, my partner and I uh, rented a boat and got into the water and I felt as though that body of water, the lake was holding me and I could feel my body. And I think the only reason I was able to feel that and remember, I can only feel myself unless someone is hugging me or touching me. But the only way I was able to feel that is because I was with my partner with whom I have a healthy, secure attachment. So I do think there is something important about attachment theory and particularly secure attachments. 50% of the world has, you know, secure attachments, or maybe I would say 40% of the world has secure attachments, 40% of the world has insecure attachments, and then like uh, 20% of the world has anxious attachments or something like that meaning we are really all in a quandary with attachments and healthy secure attachments create conditions for healing anxious attachments disordered attachments avoidant attachments insecure attachments steward more dysfunction more chaos and more disconnection. And, you know, I think that, that, you know, I just think there's a lot of work to be done culturally at the intersection of attachment theory and somatics. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm really interested in, you know, cultural somatics and politicized healing, politicized theology, where we rethink our attachments mm-hmm. and where we reimagine secure attachments so that we can build a healthier society, right? So that we can bring heaven to earth. And I do think that starts with, you know, the decolonial work, the decolonial Mm -hmm. turn, which you've already mentioned people like Joe Lumen and others are doing. And I think that when we begin to reorient ourselves toward healthy attachments and secure attachments, I think we will have a different relationship to self and other, but that takes a lot of work mm-hmm. and, and a lot of work deep in relationship with a trusted source and community. And, you know, I think the myth of our moment, what I call the fourth world war, which is the war of globalized neoliberalism. The myth is that you've got to do it all on your own. And that will just result in disordered, anxious attachments. We really do need to foster a togetherness or, or what I call, uh, you know, 
in conjunto. If you look at Latin America, there is a big focus on like la familia, which is not the same as the nuclear family here. La familia in Latin America is this intergenerational connection, attachments to cousins and parents and kids and sisters and chosen family, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's bio and chosen. Whereas here in the US, you know, the nuclear family is, you know, two parents, 2.5 kids and a dog, mm -hmm. most of whom result in divorce. And then, and then there's disconnection, you know, and, and that's really my story. The only family that I've known has been chosen family. Mm -hmm. And that, that is how I have recuperated healthy attachments is through chosen family. And sometimes that's what we have to do is recuperate attachments through and by choosing family. And I, I do think when we choose to recuperate healthy and secure attachments, we become different people. Yeah. I think again, like it's been a new thing for me to realize how much belonging has mattered to my story, which I mean, it's a very it's something that all humans want. Like we want to belong, but to name it as that for why I would end up at a church that I ended up being spiritually abused at, right. It's because right. I'm looking for belonging. And for a time I found that here and, or there, you know, I'm not there anymore, but yeah. And so then to be on this journey, I didn't like, when I tell you watching Encanto, how much I cried. Yeah. I wasn't ready. I was not ready, but I was yeah. like, Mirabelle, she just wants to belong. And yeah. now they see her <laughs> I yeah. was just bawling. Right. And just to sit with that and to realize that, you know, again, so much of my relationships did have that anxious attachment and this wondering, is this person going to leave me too? Am I going to be abandoned in this relationship too? Right. And to now foster relationships where like I give energy to those relationships where I don't have that anxiety, but rather I have an ease in the relationship. Not that the relationship itself is easy, but that there's this natural, like there are boundaries, there's um, respect and consent and all these things. And an understanding that if I harm you, you'll let me know. If right. you harm me, I'll let you know. And we'll right. work through that together. And what that does for, like, I can see for myself as I heal that, what I, um, like Resma Minicum's book, yeah. um, my grandmother's hands. So uh -huh. I got the language there where he talks about like creating space in your nervous system. And so as I do that for myself, then I'm helping my kids create space in their nervous systems right. and anyone who I'm in relationship with. And so, yes, like I just, I love all of that so much. And I wanted to ask you, what is your vision then for participatory democracy, emancipatory politics, and this democratic justice for a healed collective body? What is your vision? Well, my vision is for ethical futures, plural. And I think an ethical future, ethical futures include all of what you've just written, um, emancipatory politics, participatory democracy, cosmopolitanism, radical difference. Ethical futures create conditions for another possible world. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, I think we need to start with the question, is every life grievable? Before we even begin to strategize on ethical futures. If we can answer that question, is every life grievable? Maybe then we will begin to practice the ethics of nonviolence. The ethics of nonviolence requires interdependence. It's a requisite for it. And so we need to practice an ethics of nonviolence and interdependence so that we can strategize on ethical futures. And I don't know, that's the hard work ahead of us. And I know a lot of people are angry and frustrated and mad and they just want to burn it all down. Well, guess what? It's already all on fire. So, so now what do we do? Yeah, that just ethical features. And I just think of, again, what whiteness does. And I wish I could remember, like I've heard several people say this. I wish I could remember like where I first heard it, but just the idea of whiteness fostering a lack of imagination of a different world. And when you think about who holds the power, like they don't want a different world, (laughs) you know? And, um, but when we are healing and when we see that the flourishing of one another and interdependence and how we need each other, all of those things, like, and even just, uh, yeah, I was wondering if you could speak to with nonviolence, what, Yeah. Okay. So there's like something sticky going on right now, you know, with some things with nonviolence. Do you know about this with a popular white progressive Christian man and his take on nonviolence? Do you know this? Can I say it? Well, I'm wondering if you're referring to the NRA protest. Yes. Yes. So like what? Yeah. So is it okay to, if we talk about that real quick? Yeah, that'd be yeah. like one of our last things. So yeah, so for anyone who doesn't know, like Shane Claiborne and I don't even remember the other guy's names. So these white, okay, these white progressive men who didn't share, one of them was like live streaming and then cut out the live stream and the other wouldn't share it of a reverend who, she's a pregnant woman of color and her name, Teresa, Reverend Teresa, um, I don't, I don't know her last uh, name, but, um, so that came to my attention through like the work of into account and Stephanie Crable. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And so when I saw that and I thought about my early journey and how Shane Claiborne was one of the voices that I really listened to when I was first coming out of white, uh, evangelicalism and all of that. But then when I heard women of color critique him in certain ways, to me, part of believing women is listening to them. And when they say, here are some ways that, yeah. And so when I saw that he had something to sign for his way of protesting and according to his, his nonviolence. So, yeah. So when you say nonviolence, I was curious if you could unpack what you mean within a system that needs to be disrupted, dismantled, composted, what nonviolence entails from your perspective. Yeah. So I first want to go back to your, I think it's related, but your comment around whiteness is, I, I say, I say whiteness is a failure to imagine. So I've, I've said that before, but also um, Sadia Hartman wrote, so much of the work of oppression is about policing the imagination. Mm. And I, and I want to offer that as part of my response to this question on nonviolence in particular with the, with the situation that you've raised. Part of nonviolence is, is not just listening, but believing mm-hmm. that 
people are have been harmed. Mm-hmm. And I think that we have got a real situation on our hands when you have two white, prominent, liberal, progressive, cis, straight men who are receiving more attention than and legitimated than women of color, people of color, queer people, et cetera. And, you know, I have been trying to figure out how do I navigate this myself? Because when the crypto fascists came after me on Twitter and then Breitbart News picked up my tweet, people like Shane Claiborne came to my defense. Why? Is it because I'm masculine of center? Is it because I have a PhD and so therefore I'm legitimated? Is it because I I can present or pass as white in some instances? Why did Reverend Teresa not get the support from these two cis white men that I did? What is that about? And I think that, you know, someone who is a dear friend of mine and with whom I'm in community is Alicia Crosby. And Alicia, you know, put on Twitter, and I'm not going to quote it verbatim only because I'm not reading it. But she said, you know, liberal, progressive, white respectability politics wins this. And I think that as a community, you know, we're all trying to figure this out. As a community, we, I think, need to sit with that. There's real wisdom there. And I, it's not just unfortunate that this is happening. It's, it, it feels like a direct threat to our organizing and our movement justice. How do we excise the cis heteropatriarchy that is always legitimated, that always gets airtime, that often appropriates women of color knowledge production um, what do we do with that? And what do I do with that as a person who is in relationship with these men? I mean, it's a, it's a real challenge. And where is my loyalty? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a live question for me, but I, but I think Alicia hit it on the head when she called out the respectability politics and you know, I say as often as I can, you should not listen to me just because I have a PhD, because, because that logic is I'm legitimated because I have credentials. You should not listen to me just because I'm ordained, because that logic is you're only listening to me because I'm legitimated by an institution. You should look at people's fruit. Mm-hmm. If there is rotten fruit, maybe you shouldn't listen to them. And people are complex. People can have rotten fruit and juicy fruit. People are complex. And when we can begin to hold the complexity and navigate through the waters of complexity, then maybe we can begin to suture the wounds. But we first have to begin to not just listen, but believe. Women and women of color, trans women, trans people. um, I mean, that that goes back to the history of sexual violence in this country, right? So 
yeah, I, I, it's a complicated circumstance. And, um, you know, but to answer your question about what is an ethics of nonviolence, um, you know, Judith Butler just wrote this book on the force of nonviolence, mm. an ethico-political bind. And I, and I read it in one sitting, it's really fabulous. And we, you know, the, the question is every life grievable comes from her. And I think we need to ask that question in this circumstance, is every life grievable? And if it's not, why not? And if it is, then what should our actions be? Maybe mobilize and move from that place, from whatever the answer is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for answering that on the spot. And yeah. quite a, uh, like you said, something you're in live, like yeah. right now, like current, yeah. it's, it's like, yeah from the time we're recording this, like a fresh instance. And yeah. And again, to root it back in that question about whose life is grievable. Um, yeah. Thanks for going there and, and kind of unpacking that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my last questions are from Tasha Hunter's podcast, when we speak and they use, she uses these to close out, uh, conversations with her guests. So who or what inspires you? Hmm. Well, I, I have to say women of color have always inspired me, particularly Gloria Anzadua, who wrote a very famous book in, that was published in 1987 called Borderlands La Frontera, the New Mestiza. And then my teacher, Dr. Nancy Elizabeth Bedford, continues to inspire me. She, in many respects, um, gave birth to my vocational life as a theologian. She was my seminary teacher and thesis advisor. Uh, We still keep in touch. We talk almost on the daily through like WhatsApp and voice memo. Um, So she deeply inspires me to be faithful in the small things, um, to live out my vocational life as a, what she calls a rear guard theologian to, to come up from behind, not casting a vision, but speaking into things and expounding on things in a theological manner. So I, I would say those two people uh, inspires me um, every day. Certainly my partner inspires me uh, just for their creativity and imagination and just all that comes from, my partner's an Aquarius and I, I hear that Aquarius people are very weird and my partner's very weird and that inspires me. And I think, you know, I love fermented foods. And so when I, when I get a chance to eat like homemade fermented foods, sourdough or kombucha or sauerkraut or pickled, whatever, you know, I'm, that also is inspiring because I'm like, wow, how did you do that? And what made you do that? Which may be a little weird, but those are the things that inspire me. I love it. I love it so much. Or who or what makes you laugh? Mm, my cats make me laugh. Frida and Diego. Man, people make me laugh. People are so weird. Um, and, and, and laughter is good for us, especially in these moments. So yeah, my friends make me laugh. Someone who I find very, very funny is my friend Darren Jackson, who is a writer and actor and also lives in Nashville. She is hilarious. My partner is hilarious. Um, 
and you get those two together it's a comedy show oh yes and like you said just laughter so good uh, during these during these days these times yeah. yes well what song or type of music gets you dancing oh you know I'm not the DJ in the house because <laughs> I'll tell you how I find music I go to Spotify and let's say it's Monday so I in the search bar I type in Monday lo-fi and that's how I find my music. Now, for those who are listening, there is a Monday lo-fi station. There is a Tuesday lo-fi station. There is a Wednesday lo-fi station because that's how I find my music. I love it. That's awesome. I'm not the D, so I'm not the DJ in the house. Um, what gets me moving is like, I don't know, my, my partner is the DJ and one of their dreams is to like DJ a concert and they have the best playlists and you know they're also a trained dancer so they know how to choose music so what gets me dancing is their music um, which is not lo-fi it's more like it's got a beat to it it's got bass it's got rhythm and we have dance parties a lot at the house I love that we need that too we need that release so much yes well the final question is where can people find you on social media and stay up to date on your work around body becoming and anything else that you have going on yeah so I'm on the web it's my full name for my website dr robin henderson espinosa.com and then twitter and instagram is i robin and then my little collaborative project, which we didn't really talk about, the Activist Theology Project, we are launching a digital community to try to be counter-hegemonic at the end of empire. And you can find out more information about that at atporch.com. And people are joining and we're trying to navigate it together, figure it out, um, but we'll be adding more content soon. And, you know, hopefully hopefully really trying to build an ethical future together Mm. at the end of empire. Nice. Oh, I will link all that in the show notes. Thank you so much, Dr. Robin, for having this conversation with me today about your book, but also about your own journey, the vulnerability to share your own story and pieces of that, but also cast a vision together. And I enjoyed our conversation and I'm grateful for you and your work. So thank you. Thanks so much. It's good to be here. Thank you so much for listening to Broadening the Narrative. Follow me on Instagram at Broadening the Narrative. If you haven't yet, please rate, review, and follow the podcast on iTunes and Spotify. Your engagement helps others find the show. If you like what you heard today, share it with a friend and on your social media. I really think that little by little, person by person, we can broaden the narrative. My memoir, Ask Familiar's Family, is now available to purchase through my website at NikkiPappas.com. As Familiar's Family explores how I was groomed for toxic relationships and religion and how I got out. And I know I'm not the only one. So head to my website to buy a copy for yourself and anyone else who is hurting and healing from toxic relationships and religion. The music for this season was created by Joshua Pappas, my oldest child. We worked together using the Chrome Music Lab song maker and had so much fun. I also want to thank Daniel Bolin for creating the episode graphic. You can access the Broadening the Narrative blog and transcripts for podcast episodes as they become available by visiting my website. Until next time, grace and peace, friends.